Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. Now you remember Mrs. Sadie Smuggery. She wanted money to buy a new fur coat. To get insurance, she employed... Media Project gives you some analysis by some veteran journalists talking about what's going on in the current world. And we hope that you enjoy the half hour of commentary that's about to come. I'm Rex Smith here from the Upstate American, formerly editor of the Times Union with Rosemary Armeo, Judy Patrick, and Alan Shartok, he of WAMC, who I would like to have start off because, Dr. Shartok, you're a political scientist. I am indeed. You have a PhD. I do. Meaning you have dealt with complex issues... And we are in a place now where we see complex issues playing out, but they are presented in a stark way that people don't grasp. Let me explain. For example, the drama over Kevin McCarthy trying to become the Speaker of the House involves a lot of backroom dealing sure. where he's making all these deals with people to try to get power. He was trying to do that. And yet when the House of Representatives becomes dysfunctional in months to come, when it cannot pass, for example, a debt ceiling increase, which will probably happen in the third quarter of the year, when it can't do this, how then do you get people to appreciate that there are consequences? Same thing is true of climate change. We see these huge storms out west in California and the disaster that comes, and yet we can't get people to understand what lies behind it. There's a complexity that is required to understand things that is very difficult, I think, for journalists to get across. And so I think that you've dealt with that as a professor trying to get across complex topics to students who may not always be amenable to understanding complexity. Do you get what I'm getting to? I do indeed, and I think you're exactly right. Most Americans don't know the depth of most issues that people are meeting in back rooms, that they're talking all night on telephones, that they're trying to figure out how to do something. And Rex, you are absolutely right when you tell us that it's hard to transmit to people who either don't know or don't want to know what's going on. For this, I would like to pass to my friend Rosemary. <laughs> because it's complex. This is a very complex issue, yeah. That is the nature of journalism, too. You're not doing books. You're not doing a thesis-length dissertation. You're doing a snapshot of one day. And so it's just in the nature of our business that we're giving little pieces of it. We don't pull it together. Is that really the role of journalism? I like to think that it is in some issues. And climate change is absolutely one where it's important that we get to it. But I don't think we can do it every day. You're talking about the Kevin McCarthy disaster, which at this point we're still in the middle of. I have heard journalists talking about what is he negotiating away in order to get power and where are we going to be in a few months when that debt ceiling comes due? It has to be lifted or the United States of America goes into default and you're looking at 20 people who seem okay with chaos and destruction 
and they are trying to talk about the consequences, but to put it all together, I think you need a historian for that. Judy, in your years as editor of the Daily Gazette, didn't you get frustrated with the fact that readers wouldn't grasp a lot of what you were trying to get across? Oh, it's so true. From something as simple as tax rates, I mean, you're trying to explain property tax assessments to simply how government functions. Although, in their defense, I mean, we were raised with a sense of how government operates. You know, things go from the House to the Senate and signed by the president and there's pocket vetoes and all these simple things that just aren't reality. And so we come into it with not a good sense of how the civic discourse happens. In this case, the coverage of McCarthy's bid to be speaker, you know, it's being covered like a game almost. And they use the word chaos a lot, but chaos was January 6, 2020. I think that was chaos at the Capitol. I think you're hearing a little bit of people saying this is what will happen with every vote if a group of five or 20 get to control what happens. We're not getting the context of how Nancy Pelosi handled things. So what context, again, is so important, and it involves people getting more involved. I mean, I think a lot of people are paying attention to this, but honestly, 90% of Americans really don't care who's going to be the next speaker yeah. of the House. Don't care about that or don't care. I, I was with a prominent business guy who has a degree from a fine institution in the state of New York who, when I mentioned climate change as an issue, he said, ah, the sun's getting closer to the earth. That's the way it's always been. Oh, and uh, It was a business degree, not a science degree. I right? gather that, yeah, it's, <laughs> I'm sorry that that particular university out in the middle of the state doesn't really give uh, science <laughs> as a required course. You know, and I tried to argue with him. I said, the problem out in California where you're getting an inch an hour of rain and San Francisco is being inundated and disaster is at hand week after week is that the Arctic is warming faster than the rest of the planet. The Arctic is melting. Warm air flow effects. He said, no, no, no. It's, we're just going to agree to disagree. And I said, yeah, but I got science on my side. And, you know, with this stupid argument... And when you're in journalism, you try to reach the audience where they are, or else you're failing as a journalist. Well, but, some do, Rex. Yeah? Some don't. So, for example, if you're writing for the New York Post, you might be reaching for a different audience or a different mentality than if you're writing for the New York Times, I think. But isn't there a responsibility? Like, I think of... Oh, well, you're so pompous. <laughs> well, here we go. <laughs> the uh, Knight Center, which is a journalism education organization, is working right now on an online course on explanatory journalism that's getting at exactly what you're talking about. They recognize that journalists have to do a better job telling people what's at stake, and that requires context, background, reminders, simply worded explanations of what this all means. And, you know, it isn't going to make a change overnight. Journalism has never worked alone. It's worked in conjunction with other government agencies. It's worked with education. And all of those have to work. It isn't just journalists explaining it. They're not going to read it in the paper or watch it on television so one day and change everything. So to what degree are our newspapers, our radio stations, television stations, historians? Because believe me, in 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, people will be going back to say, what was really going on right then? And you, Rosemary, will be having written what was going on. I think you saw that with the January 6th committee. There were journalists right. there, and they wrote about it. They testified for it. But that report, which I just got, the, you know, 835-page report, 
it's much different than the journalism, the daily journalism of the day. With time comes different points of view that blend together. Things that looked so obvious on January 6th look very different now. Witness the Capitol Police official who quit in the wake of the insurrection. Now he's written a book about it saying he wished he hadn't because now he knows X, Y, and Z. New information comes out. History is different than journalism. What's difficult is we had a conversation on last week's show about this where we talked about the fact that a lot of the audience that could be there, today's young audience, is not paying attention to any of the traditional forms. Of course, nobody's paying attention to print. I'm sorry, that's rough. But print is not good. TV is really failing now. We see that as uh, the case. They're 15 years behind print. And so we, uh, I mean, their failure is coming now 15 years later. It's tragic for TV news. And so the responsibility I think we have is to try to figure out a way to meet audiences where they are. The great classic journalism text, The Elements of Journalism by uh, Kovach and Rosenstiel, posits that journalism is unethical if it doesn't meet people where they are. That is, if you write stuff that's so highfalutin that nobody understands it, you're not practicing ethical journalism. And then you're a professor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, but that's why I think journalism has to be able, we have to figure out a way to deliver it on TikTok, on Instagram. I mean, we have to have ways that we can get to people, even if it's in snippets, but that conflicts with the need for context. So it's a dilemma. And context is generational, if you think about it. In other words, the context for my generation might be very different from, you know, my kids. Yeah, I 100% agree. But it's difficult. It's hard for someone who's used to writing stories and sentences to figure out a way to present the same information in a graph or a video or a song or a meme. Those can be effective ways of communicating basic information. It's true. It doesn't always give you context, but it can. I mean, I think the media is very diverse. There are people who produce videos, who write. I think we need to think of all of us working together. We each need to do our part. There's always going to be a need for long-form journalism to explain it because people need to read to really understand the depth of some of these problems. But also we need to encourage people to travel, to experience what's happening all over the world, to have a sense of history. Alan, you probably remember ice harvesting. I think that they don't do that so much. Ice <laughs> they, they did it a block. They did it a block from my house. That's exactly right. But the, they would do it this time of year, and you can't do it up here in upstate New York anymore because no. there's you can't no even ice. ski now. Yeah, yeah you well, can't ski. I must say, Lake Mansfield in Great Barrington. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just tried to kid you. But the fact is that you know this is why we need some of the new talent to come in. When I became the editor of the Times Union in 2002, I felt very capable of doing the job, and I thought, you know, there's a lot of change coming. We're just beginning to understand the interwebs and all of that. And, you know, I'm glad I'm not running a newsroom right now because the pace of change is so strong. If you were running a TV news operation, for example, consider this fact. In 2017, which seems not that long ago to me, 79% of households paid for cable. That is now down to two-thirds, which is still a lot, but it is falling fast. People are not even going to be getting cable into their homes because they're going to be live streaming. And do you think they're 
going to be streaming news? No. People used to turn on the news at 11 p.m. in the East, uh, 10 p.m. in the Midwest to watch what was going on in their communities. That's not happening anymore. Nope. Yeah, Rex, doesn't so much of this depend on context? As we speak this morning, there are all kinds of committees considering all kinds of things that are going on that the Congress is looking at. I was talking to a brilliant young journalist not that long ago, you know, about this, and I can't get my eyes off the television because what's happening and what happened on January 6th, what happened subsequently, all matters so much. Well, you know, there might be some hope in the very localness of news. You know, think about the fact that the George Santos story, which we've talked about here and which is so big, this fabulous Liar. Is fabulous meets liar? Uh huh. Big liar. Got elected to Congress, the guy who makes up everything. And that story, of course, did exist. That was broken by a tiny newspaper, the North Shore Leader, but no one paid attention to it. We've talked about that on this show. Mm -hmm. And there is a sense that there is still hope for the extremely local journalism. Isn't that, Judy? You you work on that for the New York Press uh, Association. Yeah, and certainly so, especially for the hometown news. You're seeing a number of small papers that are hyper-local. We call it hyper-local. It'll stick in that village. It'll stick in that town. And people do want that information. You know, this speaks the popularity of Facebook where you go and you find out, well, what was that fire about? Well, when you go on Facebook and try to find out what the fire downtown was about, you're getting a range of different opinions and you don't know what's true. That's why you need a small local paper. Can I just so disagree. Yes. I've heard about this story being broken by the local paper. They did a lousy job. It didn't break the story. They said, hey, where'd he get this money? That's not the same as saying he lied about his resume, he lied about his job, he lied about his mother, he lied about, well, name anything. And then they came out with an editorial and said, well, we don't really trust him. We're going to go with a Democrat, even though we're a Republican paper, because he looks like a serial liar. That's not the same as breaking a story. There was a reason that story was overlooked. Well, I think that it could have been picked up. I, I, I would it, give them it, more credit than you are because they wrote that he has no U.S. real property in his financial disclosure. They wrote that for a man of such alleged wealth, campaign records show that Santos and his husband live in a rented apartment attached row house in Queens. I agree that it's not as deep as it could have been, and that's where, unfortunately, the yeah, big expertise papers. Expertise and stuff but, comes in. But even but the had Times it, missed a lot of the stuff. Well, you're not, yeah, you can't get it all because and it's just so. They're saying, but listen, after they wrote what they did, nothing happened. No yeah. one paid any attention to it. This is not like it has huge impact. It isn't as if people in the town who read that one little newspaper are saying, oh, give us more on this. Mm -hmm. They ignored it, too. Journalists at the big paper, Newsday should be, and I think it is, hanging its head in shame that they didn't get this. But the local paper had no impact. You can't dispute that. I can't say that it didn't have any impact. I think some people read this, and they, there was more than one story. A series of stories, they found no campaign office, no signs. They reported it again and again. I mean, that is a classic example of what happens when a small local paper breaks a big story. Often it gets ignored. It's not until the New York Times wrote about Nexium that anything really happened. Break my heart. I, I, think, I think this is <laughs> totally journalists looking back and making the myth of the little paper that beats the big giants that those papers win Pulitzers every year because of this same thing. It is not true. It is different when a real journalist, a professional journalist who does like the New York Times did tick by tick by tick down his resume 
and that was not done, and local papers can't do it. We are not getting new people into that because they don't pay anything. There's, what, two people work on the staff of yeah. that newspaper? Come on. Yeah. They're, they're not going to put any But that is a it. difficulty of the networks of journalism. Nexium is the one that is so hard because, you know, we had a reporter who worked on Nexium for a year, a great investigative reporter, Jim Odato, at the Times Union, and yet that story did not draw prosecutors' attention until the New York Times dipped into it, which, by the way, was also following a website out in Buffalo, which had broken some of this stuff. And so you'd rely, even the big papers, even with a lot of the resources of the New York Times, you rely upon finding stuff. Or, you know, how many times have you in your career been ticked off that 60 Minutes swoops in and picks up a local story that you've worked on, and suddenly it gets elevated by this national broadcast that gives it wings? I guess that's just kind of the way it is. The big dogs get to feed and the lesser ones. But the important point here is that the story first comes about at the local level. If it's not for these local papers, a lot of these stories will never see the light of day. Well, this has always been the case, and it used to be that that's where you started. You got your chops at the local paper and then moved up. Now, there just are not enough resources, and those people are not getting experience at the local level. They're being hired right out of school at giant papers where they have no business being. I'm going to say that. I'm jealous of them. was no way that I was going to graduate valedictorian of the best journalism school in this state and then get a job. I went to the Leader Herald in Gloversville, and I was happy to get that job. That does not happen anymore. You learn how to cover big stories by covering little stories. Well, we Gloversville is anymore. an important city. Nobody goes around with cold, <laughs> I covered with cold, the YMCA, nobody goes around with cold the YWCA, pants. and the Jewish Community Center. <laughs> this was not a big beat. I did not get big stories and wasn't given a chance, whereas other young reporters get hired now, like by the Wall Street Journal, and they're working with senior reporters and editors on giant stories. So are they going to miss everything? Yes, because there's not enough of these being hired. But when it comes to covering the local congressional candidates and whether or not they should be in office in their campaigns, I guess the attention of the New York Times and the national media means a lot to the nation, but to the people who actually vote for him in his district, it's the local papers that really matter. But well, they didn't listen the to him. They voted, they well, voted for him, Judy. Because <laughs> the focus of that campaign was a pro-Trump. He was a pro-Trump uh. candidate and he rang the bell about crime and folks was on that. And he was gay, yes, all those things. But listen, what we're doing here is looking at the story and you're saying, oh, the local papers did a great job, we need to elevate them. I'm saying, no, we ought to be punishing the big paper, which Mm. should have seen it, which should have been checking a resume. How would you punish anybody, a big paper? Oh, man, the next time we covered any kind of election, I I would make sure everybody had the resumes and the first thing you're going to do is check the resume of every person running, which we used to do. No, there were 10 people running for that congressional district, so... Are you suggesting the New York Times yes. do, do background checks on... That's 10 phone calls, Judy. Yeah. You have 10 candidates. You call the school. There are 400 and how many congressional districts in the country? For every congressional district we do Yes, do, absolutely. Does every we used radio to. station that interviews a congressional candidate have to do a full background check? Yes, and, we do, obviously. And even the New York Times has always complained about not having enough resources. Right. Well, and they, of course, have 1,300 people in the newsroom, and they will still tell you they don't have the resources yeah, to I check know. every <laughs> every campaign that they need to. It is and you don't have to do everything. This was a hugely important race. The polls clearly showed that it was flipping, and it should have gotten more attention than it did from Newsday. I'm sorry, I fault Newsday rather than applaud the North Shore, whatever it is. Or and Newsday and the New York Times. That district is basically covered by both. And, of course, yeah, the Daily the News is wait. a shadow of its former self. The New York Post would not do anything about it because it also, not only does it have too few reporters, it only focuses on the cultural clashes, as Fox News does. Well, you know, you just raised a very interesting thing uh, I've been thinking about as I go to sleep every night. I say to myself, why? 
Why is the Daily News not up to par with the New York Post in terms of its coverage, in terms of what people think of it as the major giver of information? What's going on there? Well, they don't have as much revenue coming in anymore. Because? Because they're not playing the cultural card, I think, as much. And they didn't have the financial backing of Rupert Murdoch to sustain the newsroom the way the Post did. The Post, remember, has been given, that is, News Corporation has been given antitrust exemptions. Thank you, Governor Cuomo, for tax. I'm sorry, the first Governor Cuomo gave tax abatements to enable Rupert Murdoch to continue to thrive, and the FCC gave a leeway to allow him to have the New York Post and the TV station and Fox News. And so we have seen the federal government cave in to Rupert Murdoch to enable him to amass this power that sustains that little newsroom at the New York Post. And then you get this fact of the kind of coverage that results from coverage by omission. You know, Fox News, for example, did not deal with the story about Donald Trump's tax returns. We read all about that in The New York Times. We heard about it on NPR. You didn't hear about it on Fox News. You don't hear about climate change on Fox News. Here's another example. The impact on Monday Night Football when DeMar Hamlin, the Buffalo safety, collapsed on the field, apparently in cardiac arrest. You know what Fox News did with that? Here's I what. to think. The guy, I, I... <laughs> <laughs> the bow tie guy, uh, Tucker Carlson. I guess he doesn't wear a bow tie anymore, but Tucker Carlson immediately turned the coverage to the danger of vaccinations, uh, to children <laughs> are collapsing so because ridiculous. of vaccinations. And maybe this is some, has something to do with vaccinations, which of course is untrue. I think, by the way, there's a good story for us to talk about here about how that was covered because ESPN quickly had to pivot from covering the game to covering what quickly became a huge story, which is an athlete in the prime of his career suddenly collapsing as a result of something that happened on the field. And the question is, would you then bring on a medical expert to talk about what might have happened, which is what CNN MSNBC. and MSNBC did, yeah. or would you do what ESPN did and just deal with what you know and go forward? I think you could make a good argument on either side of that, actually, as a journalist. Yeah, when I heard about ESPN approach, I thought, huh, that's unusual because I'm so used to the speculation now. The other ethical issue that I was hearing in those early hours was whether or not to replay the play, to yeah, show the video was... of the play. MSNBC decided not to do it. CNN did do it. I think there's reasons for both. But, but I where do you come down? Well, on? we definitely wouldn't replay it endlessly, and that's what happened on social media. I would replay it endlessly. It's the first question I had is, like, what happened? And on the station I watched they were not showing it i couldn't find it until the next day when cnn and social media had it but didn't but they the cut it just before he collapsed though no, no. They, they, they let him fall and they showed it from two different angles ah. they showed it from the side and from the front hmm. and that was necessary i mean there's no blood there's no gore so the taste thing didn't matter he didn't die so it's not like showing a man like a soldier being shot in his final minutes and it was the cause of this whole now crisis. And as for why do you have to choose between football coverage and medical coverage, both are important and both have been covered by, I think, all the stations, all the TVs. No, I think the um, choice is about papers. whether you bring in experts to sort of speculate or whether you stick with just what we know, the facts. Well, well great. you have immediate expertise available? Yeah, they had Gupta. Dr. Gupta came on and said, this is, and he named that Commodos, whatever No, it is. he, he named, they he don't did. know that, though. 
He well, said that's he what it was, have. and that's what they're saying right now. Well, well but that was speculation. That. I don't know. No, I, I don't, don't think know. they that's know speculation. at this point. This is like saying, oh, you know, on a trial, should we not cover a crime until it's already been adjudicated? Uh, no, I want to know now. I want to know as much as you want. And yes, okay, it's speculation, but that's surely what it's looking yes, like. Yes, but what you want to know may have less to do with what's right than uh, the way it you know, Right goes. to know versus want to know. I got yeah, it. There's so much speculation, in ca- especially in cable news. That's what they fill the air with is, you know, well, what's going on? And, you know, Kevin Mar- McCarthy might be saying this to this person. Unless you really know, you're just feeding the machine with... Talking without... about a lot of dead air time. <laughs> you know, we don't know. Which they Stay tuned. We'll, we'll tell you next week, man. They could be talking about climate change people. instead. Yeah. There are plenty of other stories to do other than just speculate. Football in this country is all spectacle. It's all public. Then you have a hugely important event like this happen, and you're going to go to, well, no, we can't show this to you because it might be in bad taste, and we don't really know what happened yet. No, I think that's great. I would show it. Absolutely. I mean, I I use... But how often would you show it? I was okay with seeing it once. I didn't want to see it again. In a loop. Well, you saw it (laughs) once, but if they only show it once, who are they missing? I mean, that's the way cable works. It's not meant to be you sit there and watch it all day long. Right, but... See the, the one the one segment I saw I saw the same thing three or four times in the same segment. So I was thinking that that's a little too much. Does it go back to the nine eleven controversy about how often you uh, even on the bumpers they for a while they were showing, showing the jet crashing into the into yeah. the, uh, or the towers or the building collapsing and the building too. collapsing or the man right. falling but out. Of the I tower. used man falling on the Times Union. I thought that that was, was a, a Richie Drew's photograph for the AP of the man plummeting down. Uh, quite an amazing photograph, and I thought that that showed the thing. And then I hear all this controversy saying, "Well, oh, no, that's a, the last minute of a man's death." Uh, that's why. It's well, did you get it? My God, that's why it's important. I have right-wing friends, if I call them that, who are complaining that we in the media are so full of ourselves, we covered Barbara Walters' death way more than we did Pope Benedict's. I have disputed that until he shows me the content analysis that proves it. But is there any is there any truth to that? Well, no, about, I can't find no, anything no, that proves I it. I think Benedict was covered hugely. But more people went to see Pele than saw the Pope. So I think that we need to understand what humans are interested in. When 280,000 people go into a stadium to witness the body of Pele and 65,000 go to see Pope Benedict, I think we understand that journalism is reflecting society, not... Now, I don't know about Barbara Walters. Was that overdone? I don't know. I don't don't think so. I don't think so. I think Uh, think there was a lot of Barbara Walters coverage, and I understand how important she was to the broadcast industry. But I'd like to see the analysis, because I almost think there is more. Why do you think she was so... So important to the broadcast industry oh, is it because of the woman uh, yeah, yes as a woman she broke barriers i wasn't always thrilled with her interviews i thought yeah. she was sometimes unfair to the people she was interviewing but she led the way for a lot of other people i mean an npr was doing the same thing but that was on radio she was important as a marker of the time. You know, I remember male journalists at the time when she became an anchor grousing that she was using her social connections and her femininity to get ahead. But the fact is, she was ferocious and she was uh, had staying power. And I think we need to recognize that she was a pioneer and made a difference at a time when, when women still couldn't get ahead as well in journalism. I and, hate that you're making those points and not me, Rex, because you're <laughs> right. Uh, and it should be it should be other women standing up for her. You know, I've had friends say, "Oh, her interview with Michael Jackson, blah blah blah." Yeah, she made errors, but the idea that she used body language, that she asked ridiculous questions of powerful people that men.
men thought were unprofessional and then got all these revelations out yeah. of her. We never saw that before. She was an innovative interviewer. She was a ferocious woman. And she, yeah, she did use her contacts. So does Ronan Farrow, by the way, who has a Pulitzer Prize and lots of praise. That's what you do. You use anything in this business to get the story. And she did that. And at that, we have to say thank you, Barbara, and thank you <laughs> for the end of this uh, program. That's Rosemary Armeo and Judy Patrick and Alan Shartok, and I'm Rex Smith with gratitude to our producer, David Gustina, for uh, leading this conversation forward by giving us these great topics, and to you folks for listening once again to The Media Project. Such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the The Media Project is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Alan Shartok is CEO of WAMC, Professor Emeritus at the State University of New York, commentator, columnist, and author. Rex Smith is the former editor of the Times Union and Substack columnist. Judy Patrick is the vice president for editorial development for the New York Press Association. And Rosemary Mail is an investigative journalist and adjunct professor at RPI. Listen to The Media Project online anytime at wamc.org or schedule a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Or just download the WAMC app for your iPhone or Android at the Play Store today. Thanks for listening. Such interesting people. Let's give free cheers of freedom of the press.